0: From the studios of kpcw in park city this is the mountain life healthy living in the wasatch i'm lynn ware peak here with david windsor this morning we speak with writer and sociologist clayton Check, who discusses the oldest distilled spirit in america tequila since moving to mexico in 2006 he's become a passionate advocate for the craft quality and the tradition of this beverage from the blue agave plant. Then child psychiatrist Dr. Katherine McCarthy explores her new book Raising a Kid Who Can: Simple Strategies to Build a Lifetime of Adaptability and Emotional Strength. It's a new approach to parenting that presents 10 essential principles for raising emotionally strong and resilient children. That all coming up this hour on the Mountain Life. Stay with us we'll be back after these words welcome back to the mountain life i'm lynn ware peak
1: and i'm david windsor
0: now here's a good trivia question what is north america's oldest distilled spirit think about it hint it's not whiskey it's tequila and at no point in history have more people been drinking tequila yet it is still the most misunderstood beverage Today, we're going to leave the mountains and go deep into the Mexican desert to explore the agave plant and its spirits and its culture. Our next guest is writer and sociologist Clayton Check, who moved to Mexico in 2006 and since has become a passionate advocate for tequila. He tells us everything we must know about tequila in his new book, A Field Guide to Tequila. Clayton, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Well, not only are you a writer and a sociologist, but you were so inspired by tequila, as you say, love at First Sip, that you you also started a business to help people understand tequila a little bit more. What was the genesis there?
2: Well, I the first time I visited the town of tequila, so folks might not know that it takes its name from one particular town uh, in the western state of Jalisco. Uh, and the area where it can be made is much broader, but that's that's where the name comes from. And I had been sipping on tequila, become becoming someone who could appreciate tequila for about a year, living in a very different part of Mexico, and was about to head back to the U.S. Uh, for a different job, and thought I really have to go to this place. I've been I've been reading everything I can get my hands on in Spanish and English about tequila for a year, and it just it just seems too bizarre. I, I can't even imagine what this plant is like, what these distilleries are like. So I went for myself and. I had been to a lot of special places in mexico over the years but something about the town and the people really really captivated me there and i almost immediately i i had never run a business i didn't know anything about the tour industry but i just decided i want to bring people here so they can experience what i've experienced so i i started a little company which is now called experience agave and and that's meant to be kind of a gentle command like you must experience it because it's not just about drinking
0: I love that. Okay, you're a sociologist by training. I'm assuming that you went to Mexico initially for some job of the sort, and the job that you ended up giving up was also a sociology position? No, well, so I'm actually
2: in the PhD program at the U right now, and returning to academia was, was uh, we could say it was COVID-related, uh, because, you know, that was a little tough for our, our industry and tourism. So I've always had Sort of these sociological goggles, and I look at something like tequila, which you might just simply see as a, a bottle on a shelf, but I look at that and I see all the labor um, and all the history and the relationships with with a plant and a natural environment that go into creating that. So, uh, I've I've I you know my background was in sociology. I always had those lenses on, um, but I went down to teach English and really to get my Spanish to to another level and went back to the u.s to open a spanish language school for adults with a business partner in portland oregon and we initially conceived of these tequila trips as immersion for our students i very quickly realized it could take over my life and that i kind of wanted it to take over my life so we we shook hands and parted ways on the school and uh you know this was about 15 years ago and and i've just been doing the tours ever since
1: Man, I'd love a full immersion in a tequila facility. I know, right? I know. (laughs) Clayton, tell me, so walk us through a little bit about tequila. What I understand is it's kind of like a champagne. If it doesn't come from that particular region and that type, you know, and it has obviously the agave plant, it's not classified as a tequila. Is that correct?
2: That's right. I approach this as there's three definitional elements that we need. We have a what, we have a where, and we have a how. Um, and the what is the blue agave. It's got a longer scientific name, but we just colloquially call it the blue agave. So imagine that that's one varietal of grape, right? That's like a Chardonnay or a merlot. it is it is one varietal, a subspecies of one of about two hundred species of agave. So tequila is just one. Uh, and the region is called the denomination of origin for tequila, And it's a pretty big zone. It's one entire Mexican state and parts of four other states. Um, And so it's gotta be blue agave grown in that region. The spirit itself has to be made in that region. And then the how is this set of rules that is established by the Mexican government and interpreted and enforced by essentially a a nonprofit organization that the state authorizes to to enforce this system. And so if if one of those three things is missing, you might have what we call an agave distillate, um, but you don't have a tequila. Agave distillates can be fantastic too. It's just a different thing.
1: Yeah, I've never had that. I've, I've been a big tequila drinker for, for quite a while now, but the tequila industry is growing a lot in the U.S. There's 527 million liters of tequila were produced, and it's now in talks of overtaking whiskey sales and vodka for that matter. I wonder, there's been a lot of, celebrities coming up in the last decade, we'll call it that have created their own brands and sold for really big money. And is that a part of it is that the celebrity culture is kind of bringing this to the mainstream and and the audience is following it?
2: I think it is, although I think that kind of cuts both ways because I think that a lot of that growth is independent of these celebrity brands. And so the the expanding economic pie is also attracting them because from a perspective of a celebrity, my guess is this looks like relatively easy money, um, and and it's they're the, some of the only people for whom this business is easy money. Because for everyone else, it's very very hard. But you know, if you're Dwayne the Rock Johnson, or if you're George Clooney, um, or if you're Jenny Rivera, you can put your name on something, you can do some public appearances, and you're probably not having to do very much more. Um, and there, at least initially, that's going to help a lot with sales. But I don't think folks like that would be getting involved with tequila if they didn't already see it as a rising category.
0: If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with Clayton Check. He's written a new book called Field Guide to Tequila. And following up on David's question, I was in the, the liquor store here in Perk City and perusing the wall. And usually when I look at the wall of tequilas, I get kind of confused. And most times I just walk away without buying anything. But I was standing there one day and this gal was standing next to me. And and she said, you're not going to buy that tequila just based on the fact that it's made by a really hot actor. And of course, I was looking at the whatever it's called by George Clooney. It did make me shy away from it and look into something <laughs> more quote-unquote authentic, I don't know. But let's go to that whole question about all the different types of tequila, all all of those classifications, you know, like reposado or añejo, extra añejo, or plata, you know, white, gold, silver, all of that. It's really pretty confusing.
2: Well, yeah, so the first thing, and maybe if people take only one thing away from my book or any talk I ever give, I usually prefer that it be that they understand that there are two categories of tequila. And if you're listening to this show, I can pretty strongly recommend that the only one that you really want to deal with is 100% agave tequila. And that means something very specific, which is that all the sugar that was fermented into alcohol in that beverage came from the agave exclusively. And so none of the none of the alcohols were produced by table sugar or high fructose corn syrup or things like this. So, you know, these tend to taste better. They taste more like what tequila is supposed to taste like. And anecdotally, for reasons we might not understand, they seem to treat us better. They seem to treat our bodies better as well. And that's very unscientific, but, but that seems to be the case. Within that category, you have five classes and the classes are basically defined by did this tequila have contact with oak? And if so, for how long? And so when I tell people like you going into a liquor store, I say you should go in with basically two things in mind. How much do you intend to spend? Um, and what class or couple of classes might you be looking at? And so someone who's very new to tequila, but likes bourbon or likes rye whiskey or likes French style brandies and cognacs, I'm going to recommend that they start towards the aged end of the spectrum. Uh, And so those would be your reposados, which are over two months in oak, your añejos, which are over a year in an oak barrel, and your extra añejos, which are over three years in an oak barrel. That barrel consumes some of the tequila, so it gets more expensive as it spends time in the barrel. So that's why I say, don't go in and just say, I'm going to get an extra añejo, because you might end up spending more money than you want to. So if you say, I want something aged, but I don't want to spend more than $70, well, that's going to help you. The third thing, and this might be for a subsequent visit, because it's a little nerdier, but... Uh, there's an app. I do not I do not make any money from this app. Uh, it's a free app developed by my friend and the photographer of the book, Grover Stanchigrin, and his wife, Scarlett. Uh, and it's called the Tequila Matchmaker. And if there's a second thing I want people to take away, it's probably download Tequila Matchmaker and use that to look up what ratings these tequilas have. And you'll see there are two ratings. One is all users of Tequila Matchmaker, and they're going to be mad at me that I don't remember the latest number, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people around the world that use this app. And so their average scores will be in there. And then there's a panel, of which I do happen to be a part, um, of people who have some background and some training in tequila. And our score as a panel, and not not all of us have rated all these tequilas, but the panel score will be on there too. And so if you see something that's pretty high rated by both, that's a that's a must-buy, right? And if you see something that's higher rated by the community than by the panel, um, that might be something that where the branding and the celebrity influence and and maybe sweeteners and things are are having an effect there. And that can be fine if if that's what you're looking for. And and if the panel rates it highly and everybody else hates it, it's probably real funky and weird. And (laughs) that's up to your discretion.
0: (laughs) Okay, so guarantee us that there's no payoff for these people who are uh, rating the tequilas. It's- no. Great. No, ab-
2: no, absolutely <laughs> not. And another another thing they do, and this would be kind of a tertiary level if you really want to get involved in this, is they also have a program where they verify certain tequilas that are not using any additives, any flavorings or additives, and so where really it's the agave and the and the natural process that's being expressed there. And that's a list that's growing all the time as people find out more about it, and you can see that in the app as well.
0: So. Because you're a sociologist, you look at everything through a sociology lens. You probably also looked at, say, the blue agave plant and the whole culture around tequila from a historical perspective. And I'm wondering when the first tequila was distilled. Oh,
2: well, that's a that's a real, real semantic and somewhat controversial question. (laughs) Um, We have we have to go back in in time to when it wasn't called tequila. So uh, agaves, as I said, there are are maybe somewhere around 80 species of agaves that have enough potentially fermentable carbohydrate in them to make some kind of booze from. Um, And for most of the history of what is now Mexico, those plants uh, in Jalisco were called mezcal. The plant was called mezcal. um, And that comes from Nahuatl language, meaning cooked agave, um, the, the largest indigenous language in Mexico. In most of Mexico, the name mezcal then became applied to the spirit so as you probably know there's similar agave spirits tequila historically was a regional mezcal um so in the tequila region we know for sure that people were making a distilled agave spirit from the types of agaves we used to make tequila between 1620 and 1640. now this spirit was called vino mezcal meaning wine from the mezcal plant, even though it's not wine it's much stronger than wine But vino became a kind of a contact term between the Spanish and indigenous people um, just to mean alcoholic beverages. And that's still true in much of rural Mexico. So the tradition goes back at least to 1620 to 1640. In other parts of Mexico, it might be much older. It might have been pre-conquest. That's a controversial topic where where, people take, take different sides on that. It doesn't become called just tequila. So it's called vino mezcal de tequila, just like Scotch whiskey right? And now most people, my grandpa said, I'll have a scotch whiskey, but that sounds very old timey now, right? Scotch is obviously a whiskey, but the kind of the brand of scotch, it has also this protection of its region. The brand of scotch uh, as a category has become such that we don't even call it whiskey. It's You know that it's scotch. Bourbon is similar, right? So tequila sort of separated itself from and outgrew its connection to Mezcal as a regional Mezcal. And it's really only in the late 19th or early 20th century, that it starts to be called tequila, uh, but the tradition itself goes back. You know, we're getting close to 400 years. Clayton, I uh,
1: like I said, I I, I enjoy tequila, and so I'm always shopping for it. And one of the things that, that going back to the celebrities is, you know, Kevin Hart has this new one out, which is a, a Cristalino, and they don't carry it in the liquor stores in Utah yet, so I haven't had a chance to try it. But tell us about the difference of like. A Cristalino versus, I guess, or tequila, or it's all in the same class.
2: Well, see, the and your question is right on the nose, and I I, do, I delve into this in a particular essay about Cristalinos in the book. And if it gives you any indication how on the nose your question is, the essay is called Cristalinos. What are they? <laughs> because this is a very common question, and this is kind of the reason why I am I'm I try to take a very neutral stance about most things in the book. But I would say I I am fairly against the introduction of Cristalinos because they're totally undefined right now and they tend to create the kind of confusion in an educated consumer like yourself who otherwise kind of knows what they're doing. So crystallino is a term with, with no meaning in the norm. There's this very specific set of rules called the norm, which defines tequila and its production. Crystal you know, uh, was something that was created to deal with an excess of aged tequila at a very particular time uh, in the last 10 years so what it is usually is taking an aged tequila which would otherwise you know be dark right somewhere between like light yellow to a dark mahogany as we're used to seeing just like whiskeys and then filtering that uh usually it's a filtration it's usually a fairly aggressive charcoal filtration that strips all the color out so when you're doing that you're also stripping out most or all of the flavor and aroma that is molecularly associated with that color so you end up with an aged spirit that's been turned clear and made rather neutral. Now, this next part is not necessarily the case, but what we find, and I don't, I am not familiar with the product that you're talking about. I, I know what it is, but I have not tried it, so I don't want to be, you know, painting them with the broad brush. But typically, what producers then do is they use additives to put some of that flavor back in because the barrel created flavors which have now been stripped out, which are now being put back in artificially. So, a Cristalino will always also say the name of the class of tequila, and it'll be a joven, a reposado, an añejo, an extra añejo, but it creates the kind of confusion that you're alluding to where someone sees an añejo that's crystal clear and and they're like, well, maybe everything I learned was wrong. Maybe everything in Clayton's book was wrong. This is very confusing. Um, So I think at very least we need a new norm that defines and regulates what these things are. Um, I do worry that it's gonna continue to cause a lot of confusion
1: when we're talking about what these things are if you would like kind of walk us through the classes of tequila yeah like like lynn said but how are they made what's the difference between those i mean obviously you were talking about the aging in the barrels with the reposado and the on in yeho and so uh silver just is is in its pure form and doesn't have that aging in the barrels or typically
2: not um so the the tequila tradition that we were just talking about going back so far is a white spirits tradition. So think about like Central and Eastern European fruit brandies and eau de vie and things like this, where whiskey, the tradition of whiskey is largely built around the barrel, right? Now, with all respect to people who have tried to make good white dogs, uh, good white whiskies, I keep trying and 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 they they don't really ever seem to get the complexity that you want from a distilled spirit. And and there's nothing wrong with that because the tradition of whiskey is built around this oak barrel. With agave spirits including tequila the barrel comes much much later the barrel comes from contact with the french right the french invaded and, and were in mexico in the 19th century they brought a lot of oak barrels with them mexico obviously has a very long relationship with the united states a very long border with the united states so the barrel's influence that comes in from the outside and it does really really nice things especially for those of us that come from backgrounds where brown spirits like whiskies and brandies are more what we're used to but the tradition of tequila is built around the Blanco or the Silver, and that's the basis for all those other classes that come after it. Generally, it's going to be one tequila that somebody makes, and then it's the barrel that changes it into these other classes. There there can be exceptions. Sometimes someone wants to get really creative and have a different production line for their different age expressions. That's very, very rare because that's very complicated to do, but I, I tell people, Even if you are a brown spirits drinker, and even if you're someone who hits into the grocery store and said, you know what, you're new to tequila, you find it a little aggressive, you prefer dark spirits, start with an Añejo or start with a Reposado. It's going to be a friendlier bridge. There's going to be nice oaky notes that you're used to. But eventually, you've got to learn to appreciate and evaluate the Blancos, because that is the basis for everything. Even if that's not going to be your go-to drink, if you're like, oh man, I love this Reposado, I love this Reposado, try the Blanco eventually that it was made from and it should be complex sippable and delicious unlike spirits that are meant to be aged like whiskeys and french brandies agave spirits are meant to be complex sippable and delicious in their unaged form um real quickly the blancos or platas silvers can be an oak in contact with oak up to two months um per the norm traditionally like you said they're completely unaged and most of the ones you're going to find are totally unaged but if you ever see something that's labeled as a silver or a Blanco and it looks like it has a little color to it, they probably opted to soften that up with a little bit of time in the barrel, less than two months.
0: Very interesting. What an education this is, Clayton. One of the things that I have noticed about tequila is that it shows up on some dietary trends as being the one type of alcoholic beverage that is okay to drink. And I'm assuming that's at least partially due to the low glycemic index is that right and maybe because it is so pure if you're buying a good tequila but I have a feeling you can tell me a lot more about that
2: well the first thing I have to say is I am not qualified to give nutritional advice nor to analyze the nutritional or dietary harms or benefits of any product the second thing I would say is that's also true for almost everybody making those claims um you know I I love i love tequila i love mezcal there's many other beverages that i enjoy but at the end of the day ethyl alcohol is ethyl alcohol and if you drink too much of it it's bad for you i think that most of the claims that get batted around about tequila are based are misapplied from the dietary characteristics of the agave itself as a food product um so so cooked agave has a, high sugar content, but a low glycemic index. So these are the claims that get made about, like, oh, it's good for diabetics. And again, I'm not qualified to evaluate those claims. But the idea there is that the sugar gets absorbed more slowly over time so that you don't have that blood sugar spike. um and and I believe, again, as as someone who's not qualified to to judge that, I believe there's there's significant evidence that that's correct. and And products made from a cooked agave are used as sweeteners that are supposed to be diabetic friendly, et cetera. Now, If a distilled spirit is made well and doesn't have sugar added back in there's no sugar in a distilled spirit in a white distilled spirit so most of the claims i would i would venture to say practically all the claims i've ever seen about this tequila are either very very disingenuous or kind of really misunderstand and are misapplying things that might be valid about agave as a food to a distilled spirit now as i say in the book we most of us tend to find that tequila does treat us better. It does seem to treat us better than other distilled spirits. I don't know if that's objectively true. Anecdotally, it seems true for me. Um, if that is the case, my belief is that this is about congeners. This is about other compounds that are formed naturally in fermentation that give aroma and flavor. Particular compounds make tequila like tequila and different ones make rum taste like rum and other ones make wine taste like wine. And it may be that some of those congeners, which are natural flavor compounds, affect people in a, in a less enjoyable way with some other categories, and that the ones found in tequila seem to be more easily assimilated into the body. But again, this is all conjecture. But those of us who, of course, we're biased, right? Because if we're talking about this, we already probably kind of believe this, and like tequila, you know? You'd have, to have a, you'd have to have a show with somebody completely else to get a different perspective.
0: yeah gotcha well i have to ask you about mezcal and you know back in the day you know when i was in college mezcal was the nastiest most horrible cheapest thing sometimes it still had a worm in it now mezcal there are bars dedicated to mezcal alone it's extremely popular what happened there and how is it how does it differ from what there was when i was in college
2: it's a great question and i think you know if you go back to to someone who's older they're going to have a very similar thing to say about tequila right i I just i just did a tour with with some much older gentlemen and they were like what was i what was i drinking in the 60s well it was labeled tequila but it wasn't tequila um there the regulations for tequila don't really have any teeth until 1994. the regulations for mezcal don't really have any teeth until 1997. so what's happened is not only are there regulations in place that mean that if it's getting exported as tequila or as mezcal, there's no guarantee that any of it's good. That's a subjective right, evaluation, but it's guaranteed to, make certain, to meet certain objective parameters for safety and things like that. And so it's gonna tend to be better. But what's really happened is the rest of us have caught up to the traditional communities that created these spirits that have kept true to the traditions of these spirits for hundreds of years, because there's areas of Mexico where, as I said, distillation goes back much, much farther than tequila, And these folks have typically been making these spirits called mezcal for traditional use, for local consumption, for ceremonial and and special parties and things like that. And really the commercialization of this stuff has really only started to take off in the 90s. So the really, really good stuff has always been there. It just wasn't connected to a national let alone an international market and that's starting to change um, so I, I don't know exactly what it was that that those bad Mescals were it's entirely possible they weren't even real mescal because there was no gatekeeper as it was leaving to certify that it was mescal.
1: interesting i can't believe how late in the game it was in the late 90s that's that's mind-blowing on those regulations so i mean that that alone is for lack of a better word, immature this industry has been, and how how long it's taken to to kind of grow and become mainstream. So, in your findings and what you've what you've set out to do in this tequila journey of yours, like what is the most interesting thing? What is the thing that has shocked you the most about tequila in general? Oh
2: wow, I'm not. I, that's a curveball. Um, I, I you know I think probably the answer to that is that there are pros and cons to all of this, and I think you know. For many years early on, I was more of a cheerleader and less of a critic, and and I think I have a, a balance of that now. And if you know, if you look at the concluding part of the book, that's where I kind of get into some criticisms and say, hey, there are some real problems here. So you just, I think, summarized it very well in saying that this is an Im- these are immature industries, but they're industries that have come into very old cultures and very old regional economies, and that has pros and cons and that creates winners and losers and the research that i'm currently doing about a, a different agave spirit called racia is really intended to measure and determine who wins and who loses and why um because tequila has created a lot of winners um but but it's it's had some it's had some ill effects as well and i would be remiss if i didn't mention my academic advisor's book, uh, Professor Sarita Gaitán at the U, she wrote a book about tequila that really was fun. I wouldn't be here without that book. Um, and it's called Tequila Distilling the Spirit of Mexico. Um, and she gets into a lot of this as well. So I think the most, I guess I couldn't say shocking, but I didn't necessarily expect five, six years into this to start to, you know, read things that that real sociologists, you know, I'm still, I'm still doing my PhD, but people like Sarita and Sarah Bowen uh, had written and say, oh wow, open my eyes to okay this is not all you know not all rose colored um and there are some real costs here and so just developing a more balanced perspective and becoming more critical of who do i want to support and who do i prefer to not say anything bad about but but maybe um ignore a little bit
0: wow what an interesting world clayton check is our guest he moved to mexico in 2006 and became this passionate advocate for tequila. His new book is called A Field Guide to Tequila. He's also a PhD candidate at the University of Utah, completing his thesis all about another spirit that's not actually tequila. We'll look forward to hearing more about that. Clayton, thanks so much for joining us on The Mountain Life.
2: Thank you all very much. It's been great.
1: Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm David Windsor.
0: And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. How do we
1: ensure the next generation can roll with the inevitable punches of the daily life, especially when, to a certain degree, there's a parenting epidemic that has taken kids' ability to be adaptable and resilient? Enter our next guest, Dr. Catherine McCarthy, a child psychiatrist who, along with Jennifer Weaver and Heather Tedesco, have written Raising a Kid Who Can, Simple Strategies to Build a Lifetime of Adaptability and Emotional Strength. It's a new approach to parenting that presents 10 essential principles for raising emotionally strong and resilient children. Dr. McCarthy, welcome to The Mountain Life.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us. So let's jump right in. What can we expect with parenting? What is this epidemic and what can the next generation expect inevitably?
3: Well, we've wrote this book starting at the beginning of the pandemic thinking we'd put a bunch of stuff together all of our top most important things that we think help parents given the height of the pandemic anxiety but well before the pandemic anxiety stress the demands of modern life was already already causing kids a lot of stress and parents a lot of stress pandemic only highlighted it and it's continued since so we took the best information out there we combed all of our lenses and in our decades of experience and we put together what we call the are the ten essentials to try to make it as ridiculously simple for parents that whose lives continue to get more and more stressful and for kids when we had the pandemic you know when you look back it's 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 amazing we would have thought that like gosh could we have gotten through that if we if we'd been looking ahead but looking back we did And now we have this opportunity where we all had to deal with uncertainty to really allow kids to see that they can deal and adapt for whatever is going to be four years from now 40 years from now
1: so with the anxiety of these children and all the things that they're facing nowadays i mean there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of social pressure obviously technology and social media has done that but i'm curious with when we go back to the pandemic have you noticed a, a certain age range that was affected the most it was it nine to ten got got left behind in school or social skills or 13 and 14 had the anxiety of bullying and online or have you noticed or is it across the board from you know once they enter the school system that the pandemic affected every child
3: that is such a great question you know they're still crunching a lot of the research around around the pandemic but as a you know child psychiatrist and the college my, my co-authors would say the same thing there's a couple pockets that were particularly hard certainly with younger kids kids that were going into elementary school the social piece we always talk about reading learning that's yes that's all important but learning to be able to connect with other people and be socialized as humans uh, is is something that we get from being around other kids. So that's one pocket where a lot of teachers must, would, would agree that that there's like a lot of catch up happening. The other places where there's bigger rites of passage, like going from middle school to high school, like these little kids that were before puberty, suddenly, you know, like this or with the like man kids, the grown up kid, um, kids, they're just then they go to high school and they've been at home. So they've lost all that middle school time, which for a lot of us wasn't our favorite time. I think that there's some benefits to avoid that. Maybe that's an overstatement. But that was a big re-entry was tough. And then finally, really tough population. I think sometimes gets understudied understudied as the college population. So we think that like when they're on their own, then everything's okay. But kids that were in 10th grade that suddenly were going to college and and hadn't had that last that last bit of having to do things more independently and those opportunities to do that. That's where seeing just so much hardship, that college population, it's across the board. One, one thing that's, I'm going to make it pretty simple, it's going to sound creepy, but um, is there's a very famous NIH study that was going on of looking at brains before the pandemic. So MRIs every year of little kids' brains, it's called the ABCD study. Uh, an adolescent brain continuous treatment study. I probably got that wrong, but hopefully it didn't. And then so they have these MRIs going all the way from young child going, and then they're going to be going up into the 20s. And so they've got this group they could measure everyone's MRIs, what was happening with with kids as they went in the pandemic, because they'd already been, you know, looked at. And in the pandemic, it looked like certain groups, their brains aged a little too fast, about three times too fast. Now, I'm not with, with young brains, they got years and years to develop. So this is not all doom and gloom at all because they can bounce back. But that's where that was it the massive stress. Was it the isolation? Was it not being around people? Was, you know, we see that in trauma sometimes. And so that's where there's there's definite changes. But at the same time, kids' brains are molding shape in plastic and bounce back a lot easier than we do as, as adults.
0: Mm. That is a, what did you, what word did you use a creepy study? That is kind of yeah. creepy. It's hard to really grasp until, you know, there are people like you all who are working with children and parents on a daily basis to see what's happening to kids. I have a friend who's a a kindergarten teacher and suddenly, you know, that group that was at home and didn't go to preschool during the pandemic and then they come in as kindergarten, she... She said, these kids have not gotten the socialization. They don't have to um, respond, behave. They don't have the social skills. So very interesting world that you are enmeshed in. Catherine, you have co-written this book along with Heather Tedesco, who's a a licensed psychologist, and Jennifer Weaver, who is a child therapist. I am just wondering, I mean, you guys have all kinds of credibility. Can you please just give us a little background and, and how you... You know, came together the three of you to do this project.
3: Well, truth be told, we're also really good friends, and we're friends before and still are after living together for so long. But I'm a I'm a child psychiatrist, so around here in our little you know town right outside DC, I went to medical school, a background in neurology, and you know kids growing up and and in disorders that way, and and helping you know from that medical science perspective, and then often pair with you know, Dr. Desco, Heather, who's a parent therapist, behaviorist, help me with the parent piece to say the say the words that sometimes got to have somebody cut to the chase, but um, incredible behaviorist. And then part of our team too, even though we work in separate practices is Jennifer Weaver, who's one of the most talented in human therapists around, but sees things from the kids lens. So she will work with kids in that realm. And the three of us in work will, you know, team up, collaborate, which is such a privilege because you do not get it all as a physician and you get other people's lenses and eyes. And then we just happen to be friends and our kids are friends and we know each other from 20 years back.
0: If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with Dr. Catherine McCarthy. She has co-written a book called Raising a Kid Who Can, Simple Strategies to Build a Lifetime of Adaptability and Emotional Strength. And Catherine, as David said in the intro, it's kind of interesting that... In this generation of parenting (laughs) we have to read books on adaptability and resilience because largely being, you know, helicopter parents and there was a new term I heard just yesterday which was funny because we live in a wintery environment called snowplow parents. Anyway, we have done this to our kids and so now people like you all are writing books on how to undo what we have done to our kids and make them resilient and more adaptable.
3: What do you have to say about that? Well, that is so well said. The way you said it, if I wasn't sitting here, you know, just feeling nervous, hanging on every word, I would be writing that down because you said it so beautifully. I'll get to listen to it. Though. But but it really, when we look look at that snow pile piece, it's, I, it was a little latent here in that term too. Um, But that's, you know, clear in the way, feel that we got to fix things and watch out for anything mental health related. We, you know, the three of us feel some responsibility as mental health professionals, that by informing people so much, mental health crisis, anxiety, depression, you got to screen, you got to watch, you you can't fall asleep (laughs) about doing this, that we've, that there's been understandable anxiety in parents. Of course, they're going to be more wary and cautious because how do you know especially if they're hauled off in your room their room you don't know who they're talking to it's how do you know so it's it's all understandable we're wired to want to relieve suffering in our young as mammals so so it's understandable the pendulum is swung with awareness into heightened anxiety age of anxiety for uh, parents and for kids and so with that it's just as you said so beautiful it's like pendulum swim back just a little to the middle this is not free range? out you go just find your way home from i remember coming home like all these buses in dc to get home in fourth grade i'm like who would do that anyway hopefully my parents are but um but it but somewhere in the middle because in looking at the bigger picture wanting to raise a kid that actually knows they can handle stuff and it's not to fix all the anxiety it's actually learn to tolerate it cuz my goodness if you look at our lives got plenty of anxiety we've got to be able to tolerate if we've learned anything from the pandemic is that all of us had to get comfortable with uncertainty and so allow it taking something from that and recognizing that with it, not like we like it not like we really want more experiences in life but every time that's what we want for kids to be able in whether four years from now 40 years from now whatever comes to be able to deal and it's more important than anything else
1: Dr McCarthy I'm I'm in construction and I I do I coach general contractors and one of the things I talk to them about is how entrepreneurship sucks a lot of times it it's really difficult and there's just there's so many hats you have to wear and and you have to take responsibility for all the pitfalls and a lot of that is the feeling of uncomfortableness and how to tolerate those difficult feelings and it, for young, new entrepreneurs, it's really hard to show them that this is just a part of the journey and it, it's a constant thing, but they also have those life experiences to fall back on. How do we teach young children who don't have the life experience about how to sit with that difficult feeling and the, the accepting the anxiety? How do we yeah. show them that it's, it's okay and it, it too will pass?
3: well that's that is such a great example with you know with the the higher risk environment of construction and and we can't just be like yeah you know just sit with that without the that knowledge base a couple things one is even though we think that especially when they're teenagers they have absolutely no interest in what they're saying we're saying we'll avert eye contact put in their little air pods if we not saying like hey listen to my teaching point right now but when they're sitting there in the car when we're even this morning there was a bunch of construction right by my office and so time like this if i'd had my kid in the car would have said oh my gosh this is my time to be on nbr radio and talking out loud. We call it making the implicit explicit so that you are yammering on about your thoughts, how you're managing your own anxiety and talking yourself down, even if they do not sound like they're listening at all. Because at some point, their battery will run out. At some point, something you say, well, they'll actually be perked up. And eventually, at some point, they will get that piece. So that's, that's where walking through all the places we have challenges, screw up, have stress ourselves. Not expecting to listen, not making it always a teaching point, but solving out loud. That's one. The other piece is to age appropriate wise, and that's where this book really, you know, highlights that piece. So it's not the same kind of words for everybody. But we talk, we have a little phrase. We want like things to be sound bites, easy to remember, simple. Is uh, called a validation sandwich, and it's in this sandwich of you know two slaps of validation to sandwiching the confidence within is what if you can acknowledge that this stinks yeah just would absolutely feel stressed about the first time just like first time I had to you know open up someone and sew them up you know yeah this is terrifying the first time you've been working really hard you've been researching on it so I'm with you here I know you can deal with this whatever happens validation so it's recognizing this is scary but it's confidence that you can manage age appropriate wise it's not saying oh don't worry is is nothing or oh don't worry you'll get a perfect grade." you know it's not false reassurance it's truth but showing how how you know you they can deal how you'll work it out
1: well i'm curious as far as you've been doing this for decades and what have you seen as the biggest trend as far as the change in children and the anxiety and the confusion and the depression? I mean, I know technology has a lot to do with it, but what has been the biggest change that you've seen over the last 20 years?
3: I, I, I have to say, and I know this is, you know, controversial say, but I say it like it is this constant stream of information and, and, and the, and the screen stuff. And it's so hard, you know, having raised kids and having a very, unpleasant incidents after christmas one year where i was threatening to throw this xbox off the balcony just we, you know doing the best we can i was like why did i give this to him and now he won't come out you know what have i done we're all doing the best that we can but it's like it's like being a doctor all the time one of the annoying things about being a doctor but you just suck it up because it's part of the job is you have to be on call all the time and so yeah there's pager and if you go on vacation give the pager to someone else it's awesome but but now everybody's on call all the time, so you can be just out having a beautiful walk, hiking, ski, and then you know you immediately look at your phone and get information of something. So being able to protect our brains, because kids every second they want to feel connected, they're looking, and a lot, most of the time when they look at someone else, it's where who's hanging out with someone else without me, or who's having a you know more friends over, it's just every opportunity to have like those, those annoying holiday cards. I don't, I, hopefully nobody's listening who sends this particular one to our house where it just like, it is so golden in their house. I'm surprised they don't have a Nobel prize. And so it's so great, love them. They're wonderful, amazing, but it's, it's kind of hard to read when, you know, you're barely managing, you know, it's just, you know, you're happy for them. But And so that's where these kids have to have that all the time comparing. So when you constantly compare, information intruding on intruding on your brain and not always being with people we need people and being outdoors which you get lots of
0: yes being being outdoors getting a lot of exercise we know that is sort of a panacea to ADD and even you know this is something I wanted to ask you about because you're a psychiatrist and you are the person who is um, prescribing some of these medications that kids you know in a lot of ways there is that counter argument they don't need medication they just need to move their bodies can you just comment on that as a psychiatrist yeah
3: absolutely because even though it's not in the book that's one of my one of my favorite areas um and um but but with that, when, when someone truly has diagnosis of ADD, ADHD, they keep on changing the name, so it's kind of confusing. It's it's something that just like diabetes, just like you know, strep throat is when it's legitimately well diagnosed, is real. And we can we know that from it's better research, I think, than probably anything else in my field. At the same time, part of having it is that you know, humans are with the with kids being not being able to sit still or focus we're wired to move man we're wired to not just sit there all day and some of us a lot more than others we needed the people you know Columbus like you know if you just like sat there focusing all the time rather than in the the boats Nina Penta Santa Marina or looking at Lewis and Clark you know you want be on the move and and the pioneers that you know discovered and lands you know so so we're wired that way to, and that's what that's what certain some of us need more than others everybody's brain functions better with exercise. Everybody, and especially now, there's a problem with um, some kids being able to access medicine for attention, which is part of the treatment bill, just a part, is that being able to move, being able to take breaks, but exercise changes the brain. It's the way, even grownups, we grow our brains when we exercise more. It's a way we can spark growth in our brains, even, even very, very aged people so it makes everything better but it's um it's a it's we're wired some of us to really move a lot more than we can
0: you have a couple of the, of the 10 essentials that really jump out at me 10 essentials some of them you know like resilience and motivation and building independence are things we would expect to see but I, I would love to go into essential number four which is accepting anxiety and avoiding avoidance this is something as adults like I've always had this mantra you know do something that scares you every day yes. and of course a lot of days I, I don't get there but putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and not avoiding them it sounds like that's what you're talking about here can you explore that a little
3: more Oh, I love that. I love that. Doing something each day. I love that. So so the probably most common of fears, you know, most common kind of thing that, you know, is in humans when it comes to concrete kind of psychiatry is the way, way it's treated. When we have a fear, like a phobia, phobia, is the more you do it, you're training your brain that you're not going to be destroyed. You're not going to, you're not going to die. But the signals we get that are survival reflex, our fear, our threat detection center are telling us like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like this happens to me with skiing each time, which is very at where you are. So since I didn't ski enough being, you know, from here and when I was younger, for me, every time I do it, I have to start over and I'll be like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get down? And if I don't do it, if I just stay here and don't go skiing, it's just going to get worse. The more you avoid, the bigger it gets. So the more we avoid things that causes anxiety, the bigger it's going to get. We'll start getting anxious about other things. So by facing things, you never want that anxiety feeling to get in the way of what you want or need to do. And so not letting kids experience it is to one, act like it's like showing them they can't handle the feeling the feeling in the moment when i'm sitting there and i got off the wrong lift and i'm like looking down i'm like oh my gosh sweaty all over my little son was like you can do it mom you can do it and and it's it's a horrible feeling i'm like no i'm gonna pass out what if i pass if we don't pass out we can feel really horrible we have to have to get down the mountain when when we do it we think, go, oh, oh, my gosh, so good. It's the only way. It's the avoidance that makes it bigger, not the feeling. The feeling feels horrible, but just actually burns a lot of calories.
1: As far as that feeling goes, I'm curious. It just sparked something in me. Uh, I've heard before that, and I'd like you to prove or disprove this, but that anxiety is the same chemical reaction in your body as excitement. And so if uh-huh. you can reframe your mindset to just say, like yeah. I, you get off that ski lift yeah. and being like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm yeah. so excited rather than I'm so anxious. I'm so scared. Yeah. It, it reframes your mindset that you have the same chemical imbalance going on in your body, but it's, it's, it's reframed in a different way. Is that, is that accurate?
3: Yes, that's absolutely accurate because the language we use has huge power. And we we are very brainwashable. That's part of that digital problem, age. Is in so we can we can brainwash ourselves. There's a great TED talk, I think, and she we highlight the book, Kelly McGonigal says exactly that, that if you can, if you look at your relationship with it, like I'm excited to do this, I'm psyched to do this. I, this is. I want to do this. I want to do this. I psyched to do this. Then it rains. Oh yeah, you're psyched to do this. It's, but it is the same. It's adrenaline. It's what we want before a race, before sports. Get that horrible feeling. That's why some of us, like before we went running and races, might have done like yacked in the bushes. Feel really unpleasant. But it's the adrenaline. If you don't have any anxiety, you're like, ah, whatever. I'll just take my time with this. So reframe it. That's absolutely. That research shows that. That's that spot on. That when you reframe it that your brain and your body come along for the ride.
1: So that kind of takes me to one of your chapters about resilience and the bounce back. It, it reminds me of like the Rocky scene where he says, like, it doesn't matter how many times you get hit, it's how many times you get up. And so how are you helping young children and parents and everyone to, to lean into the bounce back and being more resilient? Because once again, a lot of these children don't have those life experiences to understand that the bounce back is the inevitable and life will continue on no matter what.
3: I think it's, it's it's such a great point that you make about the kids don't have that life life experience because we do by getting older. The so one thing you get with age, besides eggs and beans, is you got the experience. Is besides showing the places where you tank or even like oh, I didn't get that promotion, you know, being able to look at things honestly and how you're managing, thinking it through, and on top of that, we have so many people that kids have that we have that we admire that had their hard times in every single person whether you look at sports whether you look at other forms of leadership teachers personal family uncles aunts grandparents it's how they dig out that made them almost always almost always when you look back and you see it, it doesn't mean that like when bad things happen oh we have to be reveling in the opportunity no fewer bad things All <laughs> i'm all good with that but to try to squeeze something out of it really unfair frustrating thing happened is so what are we going to get out of it what are we going to make come from it because over and over it's the digging out and when parents are using that soundbite that really leads to the kids who can deal kids who can cope and if you know for looking at how we generally look at being a successful and happy enough adult it's being able to dig out michael phelps has had more stuff recently you know on the swimming end we've got lots of people in various forms of leadership that have they they open up about their real struggles those people in their ted talks the reason you listen is because they've had a failure like whoa i never thought that whoa
0: And that was Dr. Catherine McCarthy, her book, Raising a Kid Who Can. Thanks for tuning in to The Mountain Life here on KPCW, Park City. You can find our online archive shows at kpcw.org under the shows tab in The Mountain Life or KPCW, The Mountain Life, wherever you find your podcasts.